Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Ozzy. And we're talking about To Live and Die in L.A., another Friedkin. This time it's from 1985. It's a neo-noir action crime thriller. You seem to be a big fan of this. So why don't you tell us about yes. it? Well, I saw it when it came out, right? Which, it wasn't quite a hit. It was like a kind of a mild hit, yeah? Mm-hmm. And again, it was one of those things that was well-reviewed, but not greatly reviewed, right? Mm-hmm. So, and actually, I remember thinking at the time that I couldn't understand why it wasn't doing better or, uh, uh, you know, getting more love uh, uh, than it was getting. Because, you know, I thought it was so... Um, se- sexy is the wrong word. Yeah, because, I mean, the film is, in, in keeping with so many freaking films... It's in kind of the thrall of the kink, of the unusual, of the seamy underside, but with glamorous overtones, yeah? Mm. So, so, and actually, I think all of those things are what drew me. So, you know, it's in the art world, but it's counterfeiting money. It's kind of, it's sexual, but sex seems to be all like a transaction, you know, involving kink. All of those things seem kind of sexy and glamorous and and L.A. to me. And then the film as an action film, I mean, you know, we've talked about the chase sequence in uh, um, French Connection, but I think some of these in this film are at least as good, you know, like it's kind of, I, th- I thought it was like thrilling to see, mm. you know. Yeah, he's got something freaking about rhythm and movement, yeah. He kind of conveys the rhythm of the car and you being in the car and mm. yeah, the, the swerve of the car. I think, uh, you know, the film has all of that. I still don't think it's one of the great masterpieces of the cinema. Yeah? Um, but it's, it's, it's the only one of the films that I've been re-seeing a freaking so far that I would revisit for non-professional purposes. I just, for the pleasure of watching it again. Yeah. The chasing uh, I'd, I'd read about, although unlike The French Connection, I'd never seen bits of it before, um, but I kind of understand that it's considered a classic alongside it. I don't really see why, to be honest. I didn't like it as much. I mean, there's no account for personal taste, I guess, and I think it's good, um, but it didn't really grab me. But I think maybe actually it didn't grab me because I wasn't as invested in the characters in it. I wasn't invested in the story that, it, that was being told around it. So, you know, I needed an element of that. But before I get into it, let's just uh, say what the plot is briefly. Um, It's a good cop, bad cop thing. William Defoe plays a guy who's counterfeiting money. And uh, the cops are after him. The kind of established cop is paired up with a young guy who's quite green and quite new to it and wants to go buy the book. The older cop is happier to break the rules uh, and finds that he needs to. At one point, he wants to buy in undercover into a deal with William Defoe's character he'd have to buy in $30,000, and the FBI won't authorise that. So he convinces the younger cop to uh, help him rob $50,000. An FBI guy uh, who's undercover actually dies as a result of that. We've seen that in The French Connection as well. So it's about what rules are you willing to break to get the job done, and that sort of thing, and kind of police corruption. Someone who has no respect for authority. It's about the obsession of catching Willem Dafoe, who's responsible for the protagonist's 
elder partner's death right at the start, um, who was, you know, a couple of days away from retirement. It's that old cliche. And ultimately, and this is a spoiler, the newer guy becomes the older guy. He sees the dark side of police work. He sees what he's had to do in order to sort of succeed and what success costs. And he embodies that role. In particular, taking over a relationship with um, the informant who not only informs for the protagonist, but also is forced Ooh. to sleep with him. So what what were you going to say earlier? What are your feelings about the film? Yeah, so, um, so the thing about the chase scene was... There's a because I feel like I didn't care so much about the characters here. Um, I think it kind of lost me. So in the French Connection, when Gene Hackman is uh, driving through uh, LA, uh, driving through New York, and chasing the train and driving into stuff, I understand the character innately, and I kind of like him despite all of his problems and so on. And I understand the kind of obsession behind what he's doing, and so I'm kind of with him the whole way, and I'm with I'm with the story, I'm with the film. I didn't feel that here because I felt there was a cheapness to kind of everything, really, and a kind of, I would say actually a kind of phoniness. Like, it's almost as though the film doesn't mean what it does at any point. Like, the, the opening of the film is the Secret Service pair who are protecting the president while he's giving a speech, and they end up on the roof of the building they're in and there's a muslim suicide bomber there who's saying death oh, that to him that was cheap that that was that was cheap and <laughs> actually anti-muslim it, it was just yes it was despicable and he's, he's he's got a bomb strapped to him and he's shouting death to america but the what's additionally cheap as well as just we've got a muslim terrorist here who signifies badness um is that the main character is kind of trying to talk him down and stall him and in the meantime his partner is hanging off the ledge and grabs him and pulls him down and as he does so the guy detonates his bomb and it explodes the next shot the guy's just there like he hasn't been harmed at all he's standing on the roof and they say okay let's go in and play some cards and get a drink and the old guy goes i'm getting too old for this and it's like it's the kind of film where that can happen is what's set up at the start it's almost a cartoon how yes. unrealistic that is whereas you know the french connection had uh, more feeling of seriousness to it, essentially. That's true. The, yeah, it felt in a more realistic vein. This is, I think, in a much more expressionistic vein. Mm. Yeah, I love L.A. in this film. I love the the chase sequence through the canyons, which are those same canyons that are used in Greece. <laughs> uh, you know, you begin to recognize kind of, you know, L.A. landmarks. Oh, the, um, the, the storm drain, you mean? The storm drain? Yeah. That they drive through Terminator 2 as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I love the actors. Uh, I, I, to me, it was like a thrill to see uh, Willem Dafoe looking so young, which actually he can't mm. have been. Yeah, but he looks very beautiful and androgynous, actually. And the film very cheaply plays on that androgyny, actually. Willem Dafoe's uh, about thirty when he makes this. Oh, uh, yeah, so reasonably uh, young. Uh, I mean. But he does look like seven or eight years younger than that. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. In his 20s. Yeah. Um, and that androgyny occurred to me as well. I really thought he reminded me of Jared Leto. Jared uh, Leto has very much the same kind of feeling to him of yeah. he's lithe and he's uh, he's got a very feminine angle to him. And, you know, in this, yes. it doesn't matter who Willem Dafoe is with, he kind of wants to kiss them. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very interesting... The film plays with that so they show us someone walking in from behind in a in a, a place been performed 
one of the actors uh, comes in, you see them just from behind, and from behind they look just like a man, right? And he starts kissing Willem Dafoe, right? And you, the camera moves a little bit, and you think it's a man. And then, of course, it cuts, and it's a woman, right? Yeah, well, she speaks, and it's a woman. But I thought exactly the same thing. Yeah. So so the film is, is making you feel that, right? Mm. Which is kind of... It is a little bit cheap, right? It is kind of, oh, this is, look at the sleaze and, yeah, kind of, and so on. When that happened, before it was, it was made clear that this was a lady, I thought, oh, of course they'd make the villain gay. And then, and then yeah. they didn't. And I went, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah, though you see them kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kink is a thing in this film, right? Mm. Uh, they film themselves having sex. Yeah, there's a woman involved in some of the sex play who just seems to be hanging around and who you don't get the full meaning of until the very last shot of the film. Uh, the William Patterson character has an informant who's clearly an informant and basically, you know, he's ha- he's making her have sex with him. Yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of... Initially, you think it's his girlfriend and then you realise, well, it's an informant and she's got no choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right? Yeah. So, so the film is kind of revelling in that. Yeah, and that takes on a very dark thing. Again, as you say, right at the very end when, when the, the, the new guy becomes the old guy and he yeah. doesn't let her escape. And the last sign of the film is, you work for me now. And it has yeah. all of this meaning layered into it that you know she yeah. she can't escape and she's going to have to have sex with him just as she had sex with the other guy. And it's really dark. It's really dark. It's really cheap. And I really love it. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not defending. Yeah. You know I'm not saying that it's not cheap. Uh, uh, it is actually, um, but you know I I I love. You see, I think this film is playing to. Friedkin's strengths, because he is wonderful at creating mood, yeah, uh, and I think he is wonderful at movement and at kind of at lining up shots, right, mm. uh, and at creating ambiance. He's clearly much better at any of that than at character or, you know, even ideas actually. Uh, so, and the film is kind of full of that, you know. Uh, so, on the one hand, it's immersed in the art world. But the art world is also a world of forgery, and it's a world of money. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's not a cliche, but it's an interesting idea, and it's kind of very interestingly visualized you mm. know, uh, in the film, you know. And I love, you know, so later on when they interview that, um, I forget what the term is now. I mean, I'm af- I'm I'm afraid of saying a, a term that will offend people. The little person in the wheelchair who also seems to be missing legs, who's an artist. I, I think he's a paraplegic dwarf. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to say that, but I thought that might be offensive. No, dwarf is the right word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you see, yeah, I think that's also they could have cast that with anybody, mm. right? So him casting a paraplegic dwarf is partly helping to create the world he wants to construct for us yeah mm. you know so a world of oddness and strangeness but art yeah yeah art and kind of underground and and corrupt in some way or yeah um so so i kind of i i like that also i very much like william patterson whom i i, I don't understand why he never really became a star yeah because he moves beautifully and very distinctively, yeah? He's kind of bow-legged, and he's got... Is it called pigeon-toed when, when your toes are a bit inward, yeah? 
you know, and he's got a warmth to him actually, which which mm. which I suppose yeah is also then a problem because uh you know uh um but I think it's more a problem with the film. Yeah, that you don't understand quite why he stops caring about human things. Someone who was so kind and thoughtful and felt the death of his partner so much at the beginning. Yeah, a partner who I, I, I think is also, you know, one of these structural cliches that Friedkin uses because, mm. you know, he's there only to be killed, right? Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, he's going to be out in the first five minutes. Um, but I don't understand how someone who had so much feeling for his partner can then watch all these other policemen get killed, you know, not necessarily by him, but partly by him. Uh, and also as a result of his actions and not feel anything. Mm. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Right? But yeah, I mean, this is another one where um, your, your main character, cop, accidentally kills an FBI guy who was undercover. Right. That happened in French Connection as well, right at the end. And similarly, sort of feels nothing, gets away with it. And this one, it's worse. Mm. Because what you have is, what you realise is that this has been a police setup all along to entrap him, Right. And so all of those people who are chasing after, who they're shooting at, who end up getting killed in accidents, and I mean, those are his pals, his co-workers, his colleagues. Yeah. Yeah, the film makes nothing of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just a car chase. Yeah, actually, right? well, the only thing the film makes of, well, because he doesn't know that at the time, they find out afterwards that this guy was, was undercover. And what, all that's made of it is, are they going to get away with it? Are they going to be caught or not? Yeah for doing it but nothing about you know this was a, a friend comrade or anything like that not interesting mm. not doesn't matter to the film doesn't matter to the characters the, well the, the young character feels very very guilty about it and ends up mm. sort of um, giving himself over to the baddie because he goes to see a guy who is working for the baddie and gives him information um, mm. so like so what, what is the moral that if you feel an appropriate sense of guilt you just make things worse for yourself <laughs> I mean, you know, this is one of the things where the film really kind of don't cohere. So I want to ask you two questions. One is a spoiler. And, um, you know, I'm going to ask it first. What did you make of the William Patterson character, who's called Chance, uh, significantly, I suppose? Uh, um, what do you make of him, of, of the, the, well, A, that he shot at the end of the film, and in the way that he shot I didn't know what to make of it at the time, other than it was a kind of a cheap, shocking thing to do. You really, I, I didn't expect it at all. You kind of expect him to come out of the film some way or other. Um, so in the moment, it surprised me and shocked me. And then when once you know when you get to the very end and the other character has sort of turned into him, um, you understand. I think well, I understood sort of how structurally. It kind of worked. It, it created a space for the really downbeat aspect of the ending to kind of kick in, I guess. Mm. I think particularly because the fact that he's no longer there, he's no longer alive, means that she can think of escaping the girl mm. and the guy comes in and di disabuses her of that notion quite quickly. As to the way he dies, um, in what way? Do, do, you mean the, do you mean the suddenness of it? or Yes. I the mean, fact the, it's by a kind of no so one character? dispatched. Yeah, the fact that it's by a character who's kind of a nobody, as opposed to the main baddie who could have killed him. Well, the, the, 
I suppose what I meant by that is that the film gives it no weight. Yes. Yeah? He's shot in the middle of a shootout and he's dead. Right. I mean, this is the protagonist of, of the whole film. You've been watching and feeling or wanting to feel for him or you've been following his actions. And then like he's just shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And maybe in that respect, that's what contributed to a kind of sense of shock that I felt and surprised because there's, there's certainly no build up to it. I mean, you've seen firefights mm. like this throughout the film and it just yeah. so happens that he dies in this one. It's the way it comes across. Um, but uh, But the fact that I also... As I said, I had real low levels of investment in these characters. Meant I didn't really feel much about it. Yeah. You know, it's spectacle. Well, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't invested. I, I mean, he's not playing a character as I understand it anyway. Mm. Yeah, you're given no sense of his wishes, hopes, desires, even feelings. I mean, you're told at the beginning that he really cares for his partner, and then that's it. You know, you think he has a girlfriend, but actually, this girlfriend is just, you know, this informer that he's basically like exploiting for sex. And and you know nothing else about about him really. Uh, um, I suppose you get a sense of that he likes power, which I think, yeah, and, and likes the position that he's in, and likes sort of um, using that power again. I think he he's very similar to the um, Hackman character from the French Connection in that sense. Yeah. You know, when Hackman walks into a room and can have fifteen people up against a wall and search their pockets, he loves being in that position. And here your character kind of loves having that position as well. And and when it comes to the girl, you know, he, he clearly doesn't love the girl. There's, there's there's no kind of romantic relationship, but he loves the fact that he can treat her the way he does. And I think you do get yeah. a feeling of that aspect of his character. It is an aspect of his character. It's not just something that he does. His action shows his character. You know, yeah. mm. you know what I also didn't like is when he returns to the flat with the money, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and begins to have sex with that informer. Because at that moment, I thought, well, you know, he's going to confront her with having sold them out, mm. right? Because it's clear to anybody that it has to be her, right? And it's certainly, you know, it's, it, it became it was instantly clear to his partner. So why isn't it clear to him? Why is there not even like, mm. you know? Yeah. I thought that was like uh, 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 an unbelievable moment. Okay, well, let's think about that then, because that's interesting. All you've done is pick up on faults. So what do you like? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, I like, I, I love, actually, Willem Dafoe uh, and John Torturo. Mm. Yeah? Uh, I think John Torturo is fantastic. Again, in a very early role, uh, you know, he, he energizes and brings life to everything he's in. Yeah. And then I really also like very much the way that William Patterson, I mean, his presence, I like very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I love the milieu that is described. I love the whole look of the film. Robbie Mueller's mm-hmm. cinematography is yeah. a thing of wonder. Yeah. It's kind of, it's like a sensuous you know, thrill to to see those images. Um, I love the long lens sort of landscape of LA that you get where everything's compressed yes. and there's a dense sunset yes. and things feel smoggy and thick and hot. I think yes. it's beautiful. And it's really, it, and it has that, that, that's a visual icon of LA, actually. Yes. And I, I love the way that LA itself is a character in the film. Mm. Yeah, it's full of shots of the landscape, of the beach, of the canyons, of you know, uh, uh, um, mm. the highways. It's an L.A. film as much as The French Connection is a New York film. Absolutely. I love the 
um, the contrast between petty officialdom and a really corrupt world. I love the feeling that a really corrupt world could also be like a kind of an innocent one. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the Willem Dafoe character is interesting because in many ways, he's he's not doing things that are so bad. Like, you know, he's just forging money. Yeah, mm. not, At the beginning, at least, he's not hurting anyone. Yeah, He's interested in art. Yeah, mm. uh, he's making money. Uh, but actually, you know, how the film progresses, that becomes darker and darker and darker. Yeah, so mm -hmm. and I like, I like, I like all of that, actually. This film has a kind of a sensuous, rhythmic pleasure, you know, that to me Sorcerer lacked. Yeah. Mm. Um, or maybe, and maybe it's just, you know, that this one is lighter and the other one is even darker uh, and grimmer. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, in many ways there are, there are kind of similarities. I mean, I think, you know, there are problems with characterizations, you know. Um, there's not a single... This is also a film in which there's nothing about love uh, or indeed laughs. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, the treatment of its minority characters is abominable as well. I mean, I think the scenes with the black men in mm. uh, To Live and Die in L.A. are also incredibly problematic. And actually, that again is a recurring theme, you know. So what you get with Friedkin is this, like, petty bourgeois aspirational American you know, who's in love with all things high-class French 16th arrondissement, you know, and who completely sneers at black people or, or, or you know, ethnic or Latin American peoples. Mm. Yeah. yeah, they're mascots and tokens to be used as villains and petty baddies. Yeah, uh, that's, that's my... Uh, I, I could be uh, uh, wronging him, you know. Uh, there are more films to come. But so far, that seems a pattern. What happens in the 16th arrondissement? What's that about? Well, the the, the posh character in uh, Sorcerer right. is from, you know, the most expensive neighborhood in Paris. Is that yeah. what it is? And you see his house with the huge Louis Sixteenth, mm. you know, gold gilt and furniture and, yeah. So is the 16th arrondissement, so, is that like Mayfair in London? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, you know, a really uh, posh, super elegant kind of neighborhood. Yeah. Mm. Uh, okay. So it has all of those connotations, right? I'm just thinking of Monopoly boards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I'm sure in the, in the French Monopoly boards, you know, the 16th arrondissement might be a neighborhood. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, um, oh, you, you, said, of... um, you said there was a, a second question you had for me. Do you remember what it was? Well, actually, I was going to ask you at that point what you thought about Torturo, but that I've just spilled oh, my yeah. beans. But what did you think of Torturo? I liked him. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the soundtrack? Um, I thought I thought it was interesting, I suppose, in comparison with um, Sorcerer, which we also watched mm. because uh, because that was um, I can't. Oh, well, there goes. What was the, what's the name of the, the band? That Tangerine did? Dream. Tangerine Dream did Sorcerer, and this was Wang Chung. I don't know if I don't know how big these musicians were before uh, Friedkin put them into these films, but he clearly has a kind of ear for um, for an iconic sound. 
that you know I think there's something I really associate with this. And actually, it's I mean the Wang Chung soundtrack. I suppose there's a there's a feeling of a general um, quote unquote eightiesness to it. That yes, I, that's what I was going to. I, what I found interesting about the film is that you know it's almost like an archetypal eighties film. Except there's something off about it, right? So the use of music is almost stereotypically 1980s. There are musical montages, you know, that are almost like stereotypically 1980s. You can see how the soundtrack is driving some of the chases or, mm. you know, moves from one scene to another. Uh, yeah, there are scenes that you could see easily being, you know, made into an MTV video. <laughs> uh, so, um, and yet there's something kind of off about it. Because, for example, I don't... I don't remember anybody singing a song within the film as part of a musical montage, yeah, which you would expect many 1980s films to do. Mm. Yeah, kind of. So there's something that is both archetypally 1980s and yet, you know, a little bit different from it, yeah? Yeah, like it's it's not quite clean and corporate enough. Though there is a bit of that because I, <laughs> I remember thinking in the credits, yeah, it's like you'll notice in the credits how so many of the artists are from the same company, um. right? And, you know, that, uh, you know, there's a thank you at the end of the credits to Warner Brothers, right? And, you know, I would be interested to know if Warner Brothers, if this is a Warner Brothers film, or, yeah, or, or, you know, kind of some affiliate of, you know, a, a Warner Brother parent company or something, because oh, there is that kind of credit at the end, which almost makes you think that Friedkin chose amongst the least known people in the label, but the nonetheless is corporate, yeah? That it is kind of label-related. How interesting. Let's see. Um, yeah, because it's not a Warner Brothers film. It's United Artists, but Warner Brothers have got at least four records on the on the soundtrack. There's Geffen Records as well. They've got four. The soundtrack was released in September '85 by Geffen Records. Uh, Warner Brothers started up Geffen Records. It was all their money. Yes. So I think what I was saying is a little bit corporate mm. in that, you know, the song choices are also kind of, you know, de demarcated or delimited really to like this company. Yeah, yeah, to Warner Brothers. Yeah, which they try to distinguish. Yeah, but they are different record labels. But if the parent company is Warner's, then actually it's the same company. You know, uh, so that's an interesting thing. It's not a free choice of music. It's tied to you know uh, something that they want from a delimited selection that can express what the filmmakers want while at the same time publicizing the records, mm. which is very archetypally eighties. But all, but it is corporate. <laughs> it is. I can tell you here what makes them separate. What makes Geffen separate from Warner Brothers is that Warner Brothers gave the gave the startup capital, and profits were split fifty fifty between Geffen and its respective distributors. One of which was Warner, but around the world there were other distributors as well. So Warner was taking half the money from those records in the states, and obviously all the money from their ones, which are also on the. Um... Oh, choreographer Leslie Linker Glatter. Sorry, I just saw in the credits. That's um, she's she's directed loads of Homeland, I think. Yeah, she's directed shitloads of Homeland. She was a choreographer on this. Who knew? Mm. Just to, just by the by, just noticed her name. <laughs> it comes just after the thanks for Warner Brothers.
Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So I suppose to, to kind of resummarize it, I feel in a way, you know, like a bad critic in the sense that I think I'm, you know, all of the faults that I am the crying sorcerer for, many of them at least, can also be seen in To Live and Die in LA. And yet I really love To Live and Die in LA and I would happily see it again. Hmm. Right. And yet, in a way, maybe without good reason to or just, you know, that I have a more particular affinity for this film. I do like uh, uh, the, the sunshininess of the look of the film in contrast to the actions that take place in it. I do like the actors in this film a whole lot more. I also like the lesbian twist. Yeah which is kind of, I suppose, a nod towards a, a perspective on feminism, however skewed in, um, I mean, the film is 1985, yeah? Mm. So it's kind of meaningful that two women get away with the money and the murder. Um, yeah. And she's gone off with um, Jane Leaves. With another woman. With who? Jane Leaves. She's, she, uh, do you remember the English girl in Frasier? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's her. Oh, wow. Unrecognisable. I recognised her. That's why I knew. <laughs> <laughs> she looks very different than she does in Frasier. Anyway, your summary of the film? I suppose if I had to show... yeah, If, if, if I had to show someone from an alien planet what the 80s looked like, I would probably pick this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to go that far. Anyway, I kind of... Um, it's an incoherent film, uh, in many ways, I think very typically uh, Friedkin, uh, but this is one that I love very much. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at Eavesdrop Movies. Uh, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.